it's so alive, you know, it's such a alive, it's such a great material, always changing and the way it plays with light. It's, and it is a fascinating, fascinating material that has been around since, you know, the Phoenicians, ancient Egypt, they've been playing with it, but yet there's so much experimentation with it today. It's a fascinating time for glass. Hello and welcome to Arts In, also known as AI, the podcast sponsored by Creative Pinellas. I'm Barbara St. Clair, your host, and I am here with Marlena Rose, a glass artist. Welcome, Marlena. Thank you so much for having me. And so I'm guessing in a way, unless people are familiar with your work, they're probably thinking blown glass, and that's not what you do. So the technique is called sand cast glass. Sand, because I'm pouring the liquid molten glass into sand, and casting is is when you pour a molten material. So I'm pouring molten glass into this sand mold. And basically the technique is based on an ancient bronze casting method that's been around for thousands of years and glass has been around forever. But the union of the two didn't really happen until the mid-1980s. So it's a fairly new approach to glass making. And what it is, in simplicity, is a stamp and a pour method. If you ever made candles in the sand, it's sort of like that. So you'd make a shape. You could use anything from clay to wood. Right now I'm mostly using insulating foam, which is a dense styrofoam that's in your house. And it's really easy to carve. So I carve the shape, whatever shape I'm making, and I stamp it into this wet sand mixture, sand that has moisture and clay, so that when you press the shape into the sand, it remembers the shape. Then I take the shape out, you're left with a hole in the sand, and then I, in simplicity, I just pour the 2000 degree molten glass in the hole. It sets up in about 15 to 20 minutes, fairly solid. Uh, at 900 degrees, it's solid, it's not going to lose its shape, and then we have to take it out of the sand at 900 degrees and put it in a cooling oven that's set at 900 degrees Fahrenheit and then slowly cools it down to room temperature over the course of a week. So the difference between the metal casting and the glass casting is this slow cooling in a special oven because if you left it in the air, like metal, it would crack. So what happened in the 1980s that suddenly opened up this door for this style of glass work? Well, in the 60s, people started to experiment with glass as a medium to communicate an idea as opposed to a craft material that is blown and used to, you know, hold something. So in the 60s, Harvey Littleton is the gentleman that's kind of the one who started the movement. And then people just started taking glass and trying different things. And in Sweden, Costa Boda started experimenting with, you know, other techniques. And then the gentleman who, who, who knew it in Sweden taught my professor. And then he taught me two years after, which was just kind of a fluke accident that I was at the right place at the right time. And, and it just clicked with my personality, this technique, and I haven't really looked back. You call your work the dangerous dance of creation. You also describe your work and reviewers describe your work as very much alive and living. And I'm used to the notion that the interaction between the art and the receiver of the art or the viewer or the reader is a living element. It's created by the juncture of the work and, and, and the perceiver. You're not talking about that. You're talking about the work itself, once created, is somehow 
full of life? Well, that is really an interesting question. Why and how it happens, I'm not sure, but I get that feedback from so many of my collectors now. The imagery definitely is, some of it is more spiritual than others. I think all of the work, even if it's abstract, for me has a spiritual side to it. But I really try to, when I'm making the work, kind of put everything away. Like it's, um, it's my release. So who I work with, how I'm doing, I try to really be present and just enjoy what it is that I'm doing. And I feel somehow that it's captured in the work, the physicality of it and the teamwork that also gets me going. So I feel like it's almost a performance piece we all know each other so well, and I just really make a point of keeping it light and making sure that the environment is light, we have good music or not at all. Working with something so dangerous, what I observed when I learned glass, it was, it was a lot of attitude and anger and and I didn't like that. And I was like, that's so not me. I never want my studio environment to be like that. So your response to the danger and the heat is is to become almost transcendently calm. Yeah. But I think that also comes from doing it, you know, over 25 years <laughs> and I have the same team working with me. So I don't even have to verbalize sometimes. It's like I point and they know exactly what it is that I need. But I just made a decision right in the beginning that I wanted the glass studio to be the same as if I were painting by myself. Eight out of the 10 hours, let's just say I'm working in the studio, is mold work. So I'm, you know, I feel like I'm almost painting in the sand and mm -hmm. it's mm -hmm. just me. But then when we're actually pouring the glass, you need the teamwork so that you don't get hurt. Some of our largest, my largest pieces that we lift can be 45 inches long and 10 inches wide. It's like they're big. It's very, very heavy and it's 900 degrees and sand is everywhere and there's... There's some drama there, but if everybody is doing their part and is doing it correctly, it, it all goes very smoothly. And if you have enough people to help, you're not really struggling. It's never the same twice. Even if you're doing the same technique over and over, you know, the mold will break, the sand mold breaks apart. And so each one, the way it reacts with heat and oxygen, depending on the colors you use will be different. You can't, you can't always know exactly. And there's been some really happy accidents that I've tried to re reproduce, but then I mm. can't do it. <laughs> When I got my start in New Orleans, I was studying there and, you know, you study art history and a lot of the great masters were influenced by African art. So I was looking at African art. Plus I was in New Orleans and really inspired by the environment there and music and Mardi Gras. There was just so much celebration. Back then I was doing a lot of African inspired work. And so I tried to understand why was it that I was drawn to it? Why did I like it? Why were the great masters inspired by it? And I realized that what I really liked was sort of bold simplicities where it, it's, everything is brought down to a few lines, but yet it, it's impactful. So how did they do that? You know, what is that? where you break things down to simplicity, but yet you have so much emotional impact. So I started just studying different cultures that I responded to. Like I love the Minoans from Crete. You know, they also brought things down to simplicity and they did art for art's sake. 
you know, going to Asia was natural for me. I loved the Shang dynasty and the Han dynasty. They, again, there was just not a huge amount of detail in their artwork, but yet it was so bold. So then I started getting influenced by that sensibility, you know, just circles and shapes. And, you know, I really like for the viewer to, I like the viewer to complete the work. And so I don't want it to be too obvious. I want there to be a dialogue between the viewer and the thing. And I liked the Buddha because of its spiritual symbolism and people really seem to respond to that. So I do more of those. And But I'm honestly working on probably seven bodies of work at the same time. Heads and masks and these self-lit pieces that go on the wall. So it's almost like a two-dimensional, three-dimensional work of art that comes off the wall in full figures. So those I started working on probably eight years ago. So those, you know, I've been on and off these totems. I started working in those butterflies inspired by my two daughters who look at all things flying, birds, butterflies. So I've been doing a lot of, you know, asymmetrical butterflies with birds in them and started those also maybe five years ago or more. You know, the Asian influence was has probably been about 10 years now. And so I did some bells, some Han Dynasty influence bells. They, they obviously don't ring. <laughs> There's silent bells. <laughs> you just have to imagine them ringing. <laughs> but I love the idea of bells. And recently I started doing this body of work, this hand, and that has a lot to do with just how my life has developed. I'm going to be 50. And, you know, I think in the beginning of your life, you're very self-absorbed trying to figure it all out. And you have kids and have to take responsibility for two lives or more. And so you think about others and taking care of others. And, and now I'm, I like to volunteer and help whenever I can. And it's more about giving back for me and helping other artists and helping in general. So that's what that body is about. Just a hand on its side. <laughs> Just done a few of those, but people seem to like them. So it's, it's constantly evolving. It's something that I, as a goal, really want people to feel uplifted. I like that the work makes them feel good in their home. And to me, that's important for me. I, I don't I don't like to really talk about not so nice things. I think that's there's enough of that out there on the news. And yeah, I guess the art that I am choosing to communicate about, I want that sense. I guess that's the purpose. My purpose is, you know, you come home and you look at the artwork and you're like, ah, oh. <laughs> So that's been the, the focus of, of my work. The old, the ancient, it's ancient imagery, it's today, it's... But yet, it, the light is so important to the work. And I love that it's always changing, like all day. It'll be a different work of art, and it's so alive, you know? It's such, an alive, it's such a great material. It's, it's really the only one that I think plays with light so much. It's all about light. It's a different thing. I mean, some of my collectors will say at night it sleeps, you know, it goes to sleep. If they don't put a light on it, it'll go to sleep. It'll look, you know, different. Turned off. Turned yeah. off. And so I love that aspect that it's just always changing and 
the way it plays with light. It's and it is a fascinating, fascinating material that has been around since you know the Phoenicians, ancient Egypt. They've been playing with it, but yet there's so much experimentation with it today. It's a fascinating time for glass. What people are doing with glass today, it's just shocking. People who collect glass are extremely passionate. I mean, they'll have 100 to 200 works of art in their collection of, you know, all the important artists who work this in this technique, pot de verre and sand casting. And, you know, it's just like they'll have a, a big collection and then they'll travel for it. It's a very tight group. And, and then there's a new museum in St. Petersburg called Imagine Museum. You know, I helped that museum with putting that collection, like I connected the museum and the collection. It's a very historic collection, which is great for our community because it's very different to like Chihuly's is just Chihuly's work. This will put it, his work in a historical context of who he inspired, who his students were, who his students then taught and became, you know, important artists. It's like this concept of this glass tree and the branches and, you know, who the original Harvey Littleton, who he taught and who then became a famous, you know, artist and then who they taught. And so it puts it in a context, puts Chihuly in a context. It's a great, great thing for our community. It'll bring a lot of these collectors from all over to see it. You have been showing your art and been in galleries and begun to have your art co collected at a very young age. You went to college, you went to graduate school at California Arts, did some work in Seattle area, and then boom, you're, you're an international presence. <laughs> well, it's interesting. It was um, not always the easiest road. It took me a long time in college. You have to decide if I was getting my Bachelor of Fine Arts, but you have to focus in on an area. And it took me the longest time because I liked everything and I didn't know what I wanted to emphasize my study. Glass was the last class that I took and it, it, it intimidated me. It's very male dominated, dangerous. And I thought of glass blowing. I didn't think of sculpture at that time. And so I was like, well, I'm more interested in sculpting than I am in, you know, making a vase or so that's not for me. And then Eventually, I just decided it's one of the few classes that I hadn't taken, so I'm just going to take it. And then the professor was very much like me. He's a sculptor who found glass. And so he's, he taught the class with that viewpoint, like, I'm going to teach you how to blow it so you understand, and then we're going to show you how to use this material to communicate an idea and the varying ways that I know how to do that. And I was like, wow, he's really speaking my language. And then when I learned the technique, the sand casting technique, it just clicked everything about it. Everything was just so me. I used to love team sports as a kid. I used to love dance. I liked sort of the adrenaline rush. I went skydiving as a kid. I just like, but I also loved the intimacy of painting. And so it, it just all of those things were incorporated in this technique. So it was like, I found my calling and immediately had great success and response from my professors. And then I went to galleries in New Orleans just to get a critique. And then I got picked up and had a solo show while I was still in college. So it was immediately good. And then all of a sudden it went really bad because, which I didn't realize at the time, it was such a new approach. It had just been developed, this technique, two years prior. So no one really knows much about it other than it makes a mess sand mm. and glass blowers 
they're very much about pristine. Oh, I can imagine. Messes everything up. Sure. And so I started like, okay, so how do I pursue this? And then I decided, well, I guess I'll go to graduate school because I don't really know what else to do. I don't know where to go. So I went to graduate school and the program was hadn't really changed over to a more sculptural facility. So I was working once a week and teaching and not really getting anything done. And all I really wanted to do was just make stuff. So I decided to end after a semester. I just was like, this is, this is not what, what I want. I just wanted to make stuff. And then it took me six, 10 years, something like that to actually find a place to make my work. I moved here. I found a place that I really liked, which is where I work now, because it was big enough. The other thing is that I'm taking up an oven, cooling my work for a week. And glass blowers, since it's the work is so thin, they're they're in the their work's in the oven for maybe a day. So you have to have enough ovens that you could let me have mine for a week to have the work mm. just sitting in there. So you need a big enough facility. Really I had taken a class, a couple of classes, and learned the basics. And here it is, like, I want to do this. This is what I want to do. But it was, it was tough. It was, you know, many years of just, like, doing other things to try to... But I had always had my eye on this. Like, it was this problem of, I know what I want to do, but I don't, I don't have a place to do it. It was something that was not easy to get there. But I feel like once I got there, it just seemed to really go very fast. The road was very fast. And I attribute that to it being so unusual and the work looks so different. And so I feel like I'm on this treadmill before more people do it. And, you know, so it's, it's hard to do because of the expense. And we have really figured a lot out in this time. I've been kind of working completely by myself with no other influence of other artists showing me ways to improve this technique. So we've sort of figured it out and pushed it pretty far. It's 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 good in many ways because it keeps it fresh, you know, but at the same time, stupid stuff with like technique. I call it the shovel technique, you know, it's like, oh, you know, once you learn what that is, it's like, oh my God. I can't believe I didn't think of this before. And we joke about the shovel technique, but it's been revolutionary. Okay, so what is the <laughs> shovel technique? <laughs> we were using, we weren't actually, we were looking at the glass, like it's very much technical as when it's cool to take it out of the sand, take it out of the mold. It's a lot of eyeballing. I mean, you could use a laser to tell you the temperature, but it's just a lot of eyeballing the glass, like what temperature it is. And what we figured is like with the shovel is like, the edge of the glass and the sandbox, it goes, you know, two feet or something. But if you get close to the edge at a certain point with a shovel and you take away the sand, it'll steam up. And then in 30 seconds to a minute or more, it'll stop steaming. And that'll tell you that now you can get a little closer to the edge. And then you take away more sand, steam, and then it stops steaming. And then you, you slowly ease your way up to the edge, like about an inch. And then with that sign that there's no more steam coming out and, you know, looking at the color of the glass, it tells you, okay, it's 900 degrees. You know, where before I was just sort of like looking at it, waiting for it to just cool. Um, another thing that, you know, was just 
out of necessity in 2008, we had, um, you know, the crash and galleries weren't producing. And so I get this guy from Texas who comes to a show that I was doing and he's like, I want it big. <laughs> can you do, what's the biggest piece you can do? So I'm like, I don't know, well, how big do you want it? And he's like, I want a piece for behind my sofa that's 45 inches wide, 15 inches high. I'm like, yeah, we could do that. Six tries later, it's on the ground, you know, broken because it's such a huge piece of glass and you're picking it up. But if it's too cool, it's going to crack. If it's too warm, it's going to buckle because that's huge thermal mass. So then I was about to give up and give him his money back when I thought of the stretcher technique. (laughs) And we built basically a stretcher and it was, you know, the bottom is a screen. So... Now it's not heavy. And then we put two handles on either side and we buried it in the sand and then made our mold on top of it. And that was revolutionary. So then, you know, you push yourself like that. You get clients that ask you to do things that you say, of course I can do that. And then you think, oh my God, how am I going to achieve this? So it has been great for that because you don't have any considerations. Like I can't, it can't be done. You know, I remember in college, when I first learned the technique, and I just loved the idea of metal and in glass because it, there were two such different materials, but yet I liked the juxtaposition of them. And I remember walking on the levee in New Orleans, and there'd be railroad spikes, and I'm like, oh my God, railroad spikes in the glass would be so edgy. And my professor's like, there is no way that's going to work. Steel, that big of steel and glass. So I said, that's fine. You know, I'll just try it. And maybe I'll take a pic. Maybe it'll come out. I'll take a picture and then it breaks. And I would have had the memory of it. So he's like, all right. For whatever reason, every piece that I use the railroad spike came out. And we decided that we thought it was because of the rust. Uh-huh. You know, that was a barrier between the steel and the glass. But again, like he was like, no way, you shouldn't do that. But it's, 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 that's why it's interesting, you know, when you have no ideas of what you can and can't do. (laughs) And my husband joined on because he had been helping me on the side. He was an architect. He had been helping me at night and on the weekends. And he was becoming more and more important and doing more And his other job was getting in the way of, you know, just our expansion. And so when his last job ended, I said, what do you think? Scary because, you know, he has, he had a salary. This is sales. If you think about it, our being an artist is sales. There's no salary. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So it was scary. That was about nine years ago. And so it's just continued to grow, which I feel so fortunate. So is there a piece or a collection of pieces that you created that are still especially resonant to you? There is. It was the first major like installation I ever did for my first solo museum show, which was at the Gulf Coast Museum of Art. And I just I wanted to have the opportunity to increase my scale. And, you know, it costs a lot of money to make my work. So when you increase the scale... And you're just doing it purely for the educational side of things. You're not thinking of the retail, you know, in a museum setting. So, you know, it's it's a real um, gamble when you're doing it because you're kind of like, I'm just doing it to do it because I want to do it. 
And I mean, that is how I do most of my work, but you know, it's going to go out there and it's going to be on display and hopefully it'll sell. But, um, this one was just purely because I had this desire to make it and it was, came out just to how I had envisioned it. It just took my breath away when I stood in front of it because of its size. It was about 12 feet wide, six feet tall. Mm. It was one of just first large scale installations. It just taught me a lesson, you know, because there was a long lag bef- before it actually did sell because it wasn't really, it was in a museum, it was in another museum for a while and it just was there, you know, being shown and, and which made me really happy. And then it sat for a while and then it ended up getting shown years later and one of my collectors got on his knee and he said, would you allow me to buy this piece? You know, and it just like made me tear up because he was so humble and genuine about his love for this. It just taught me a lot of lessons about, you know, when you're in college, you really just do things for yourself. You're just trying stuff and you're doing things from the heart. And and I, I try to keep that focus, you know, but when you're survive, your whole family is dependent on your survival. Yeah, yeah. You're also thinking about, you know, different things about what's sold and maybe I'll continue that body of work. And, but you're trying to keep it from the heart. And with that piece, it was so big and so such, it pushed me. It really pushed me, you know, like on the scale and, you know, just achieving that kind of an idea that you have that has a lot of barriers to overcome that when you keep true to yourself as like the artist and what you really want to do, it'll always work out. It's hard to remember that at at times, (laughs) you know, but it seems to in the end always, always finds its home because there was a lot of love and, you know, there was such pure passion for making the piece that people feel it. I think I try to keep that in mind that, you know, I'm really excited that I can do this. And I try to keep that in mind when I'm scared about the next level. And, oh my God, this is, it's taking a lot of time, effort, energy. Is anybody going to like it? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and you just have to keep in mind that hopefully there will be somebody on the receiving end that just loves it. You just have to get in front of that person. <laughs> well, I think that's probably a really good place to end. So thank you very much, Marlena Rose, for joining us. Thank you so much. I'm Barbara St. Clair, and you've been listening to Arts In, the Creative Pinellas podcast, sponsored in part by the Pinellas County Board of County Commissioners, Visit St. Petersburg Clearwater, and the State of Florida Department of Cultural Affairs. Arts In is produced by Matt and Sheila Cowley. And if you're enjoying this program, we hope you'll take a moment to give us a review. It's easy to subscribe to on your favorite podcast service. You can find more conversations with visual, literary, and performing artists and in-depth arts journalism at creativepinellas.org. Thank you for listening.